Good morning, everybody. This morning, we're going to leave it to me to pick five chapters on the day we have communion, but we'll do our best to get through five chapters and, and have communion at the same time. I'm sure we can do it. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. First Chronicles chapter 11 is where we'll be, but let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to sit at your feet and sing out to you to worship you. Um, we know that your spirit and those who want to worship you have to worship in spirit and truth. And so we pray this morning that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit to overflowing like you have in the past and continue to do that through our walk with you, that we might be able to worship you the way we're supposed to and understand your word and allow the sword of the spirit to work in our lives um, the way it needs to. And so we're open and receptive to everything you have for us this morning. We, we leave our spiritual health in your hands, in Jesus' name, amen. Some physical health concerns to bring up. Kathy went and visited her yesterday. Um, if you don't know, Kathy Wright, uh, one of the older ladies that attends our fellowship and has, usually sits out there, um, fell uh, right after one of her caretakers had left uh, while she was out on the porch getting her mail. And her mail fell onto the ground, and she bent over to pick it up and fell out there on her porch and lay there all night. It was, one of, it was the cold night, too. Um, and for some reason, her button didn't work for her fall and, and all that. And so they found her in the morning and got her warmed up. And she's pretty beat up and bruised a little bit, but she's, she's tough. There she sat in her chair, and uh, we prayed and talked. And, and uh, I think we've got more people visiting her now. Uh, more often, especially relatives and, and family members will be there and, and we'll be stopping by also. So if you're interested, I asked her, I said, do you want any people to come by and see or you just kind of want to be left alone? Because I don't know, sometimes you do. And and she's like, no, they can come on by. So if you want to go visit her, I'll, I'll give you the coordinates to your house. And they are coordinates to get there, I tell you. Uh, Google Maps doesn't know how to get there, so I had to drop a pin on her house and then navigate my own way there because it'll take you through. Well, you should look at our car. It's <laughs> I went four wheeling yesterday. I had to come from Maitland the other direction to her house, and man, um, I made it though. It's kind of fun sideways on the roads, going to pastor extreme, you know, kind of thing. Anyway, she's doing better, and we're thankful for that. But yikes, I can't imagine. I wouldn't want to be on my porch all night long at my age. I can't imagine at her age. It was, uh, it was not a good night for her. So please lift her up in your prayers um, as she's recovering from that and, and, and all that went along with that. A lot of fear, a lot of scare. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That'd be great, too. Yeah, we'll put the address up and uh, maybe put it in this week's email, but also we'll put it on the table out there if you want to send her a card. Um, she would always send out cards and and. and it, with our family anyway, she put a $2 bill in our in our cards. Uh, year after year after year, these $2 bills would show up. So um, just a sweet, sweet gal. Um, so that's what's going on there. P lift up the Hill family to you. Their extended family's going through it right now with COVID. A lot of, a lot of uh, a positive tests. A lot of uh, uh, Debbie's dad's in the hospital and, and going into the, to get a ventilator and everything. It's that far for him. Um, and, and so lift them up in prayer as they're going through that struggle right now. Um, Georgia Espy, she's a lady I work with in real estate, and she's been tuning in online for uh, many, many, or for, well, many months now. And, and uh, um, she's in the hospital also and asking for prayer for 
kidney and, and other issues that are going on with her that, that she just get out of there. She, you know, she's one of those go getters, you know, um, and, and she's stuck in that place. And, and, uh, but we, we want her healed up. So pray for her as well. Um, I think that was it. Somebody else mentioned something too, also on the way in. And I can't remember we got a lot of things. Let's see if I remember, I'll stop in the middle of the teaching and we'll pray, but we need to pray for those folks. Um, as they go through these difficult times. All right. First Chronicles chapter 11. David has been made king over Israel or is being made king over Israel. Saul last week uh, had met his end um, through suicide, fell on his own sword, but it also says that God took him out. God takes credit for it um, because he was a disobedient king. He had, uh, he was called by God to do what he was supposed to do, but he'd neglected following after God after that calling. And that's the struggle for, I think, any believer who comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior is we start well, but we don't finish well a lot of times. A lot of people don't finish well. Starting makes no difference, honestly. It doesn't matter if you start when you're 90 years old or if you're eight days old. If you don't finish your walk with Jesus, you don't finish well. And that's the most important thing is to finish Saul doesn't finish well. He has to be removed because he's leading the nation of Israel away from God and not towards him. And so he makes David, this young shepherd boy who was the least in his family, was anointed to be king years and years and years ago. And throughout David's life as he grows up, he is brought in and out of the palace to the point where uh, Saul finally recognizes him as a man after God's own heart and puts him in a position of authority, but then proceeds to throw spears at him through most of his time or the remainder of his time in the palace until David has to run and flee because Saul wants to kill him so badly. And Saul hates him so much, he chases him. Just, uh, just an act of jealousy, basically. David, David, because he was a man after God's own heart, whenever he would do something, it was always for the Lord with complete disregard for his own health and well-being. He would throw himself into harm's way and was known for that. That's why God picked him, because he trusted in the Lord. Well, he'd succeed because God was with him. And Saul was jealous of that because God had removed his Holy Spirit from him because he wasn't being obedient to God. David, when he falls with Bathsheba, we discussed this at the men's retreat this weekend out at Mazingo. Um, David writes that Psalm 51 and says, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It was one of the most important things on David's mind after the fall, after his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah and the baby and the whole thing was, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's the most important thing we could ever pray is that we would stay close to the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing outside of the Holy Spirit. None of it. You can't be a good husband. You can't be a good father, a good mother, a good wife, a good, a good son or a good daughter. You can't do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's how we accomplish these things. That's what Paul writes in Romans 7 and 8. 7 is the difficulty. Chapter 7 is the difficulty. Why don't I do the things I want to do for God? And chapter 8 is the solution. It's by his Holy Spirit that I can. And he understood that. And we need to understand that. David is filled with the Spirit of God. Chapter 11, verse 1, Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. 
Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. The prophecy that was given years and years and years ago as Samuel poured the anointing oil over David, symbolically showing that he was the anointed one, filled with the Spirit of God to lead the nation of Israel, finally coming to pass. It took a long time for that to happen. It took a long time for the nation of Israel to realize, you've always been the guy, David. You've always been the guy. When God calls David to be the shepherd and ruler, he makes a point to say, I want you to shepherd my people. I want you to rule over my people. They're never David's, but he is the underling shepherd. Of course, there's a chief shepherd. Of course, God is the only true shepherd, but he does bring up and raise up other shepherds, underlings, not hirelings, that's the wrong way to put it, but people that have been given the task to watch out for his sheep. And David is one of those men. Take care of my people. David always remembered that. They're not my people. They're not my citizens. I think that was one of the problems with counting the people when God said he didn't want them to count. Sometimes God would say, count them, but that's because they were his people. God had a problem when other men would count his people. What are you doing counting my sheep? They're mine. I think anybody who has a cattle ranch or any kind of ranching operation, whether that's sheep, goats, cattle, whatever it is, to find a stranger standing in your pasture going, one, two, what are you doing? I'm just counting your sheep. Are you going to take them? Are you going to steal them? Are you claiming them for yourself? What is it that you're doing here? And God always protected his people. David, I want you to shepherd my people. I want you to rule over my people. Make sure they're safe, fed, and taken care of. And so he does that. He anoints him. Finally, verse 4, the, uh, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is uh, Jebus, the Jebusites. It's where the Jebusites are from. So whether it's Jebus or Jebus or however, it's where the Jebusites lived. It's Jerusalem. But the inhabitants, the Jebusites, said to David, You shall not come in here. Well, <laughs> it's not up to you. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So he's establishing his uh, administration. He's got a bunch of guys with him, which we'll read later on, some of these mighty men of valor that are alongside of him, his warriors that are with him. He says, whoever attacks first gets to be chief and captain. Oh, okay. Well, that works both ways. You find out who's the bravest and the most courageous, which then you need to weed out those people to find out who's actually skillful enough to survive it. You know, there's a lot of brave and courageous people that'll jump off a cliff without a parachute. It's just dumb. They're not going to survive it. But this guy who does take that position survives it. And so therefore you've passed both tests. You're brave, you're courageous, but you're also capable. And so he gets to be the leader. So, the mighty men. It says this and in verse 9, before I, before I move on, this is really important. So David went on and, and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Any person uh, can only become great if the Lord is with them. That's the key. Without that second part of that phrase, David doesn't become great. It's only by the fact that the Holy Spirit is with David that he becomes great. We can try to become great without the Holy Spirit, without the Lord being with us, but it always ends up in a tragedy. 
It always ends up with failure. And with David, God wants to remind us that all the way up until this point, he is doing well. He has survived the attack of Saul. He has been anointed to be king. He's having success in Jerusalem because God is with him. Never, ever forget that. And David doesn't forget that. That it's because of God. Now, the mighty men, we begin to add and begin to name the people that are with David, that have come alongside of him to help him in his task, in his ministry that God's called them to do. And they understand who David is and that he's called by God and he's anointed by God. And they come alongside to do whatever it is that God places on his heart. And they begin to name those guys. And I'm not going to go through all that with you, but some of the chief guys are named here in verses 10 through 16. They go over the story again of how they defended the field and how they, uh, against the Philistines and so on. Chapter uh, 11, verse 17, then goes on, and David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And we've read that story already. In 2 Samuel, chapter 23, 13, he makes a, a flippant remark. Oh, I wish I could get a drink from that well, the well of Bethlehem. He sees it over there. I wish I could get a drink. It's a stronghold. It's been taken captive. There's no way to get there. Well, he says it a little too loud. And some of his mighty men take it upon themselves to go get David a drink, which is neat. And we like that. I like that idea. But David learns a valuable lesson. That these guys are going to do whatever I ask them to do. They're not the ones seeking the Lord. They're not the ones finding out what is the mind of God. What is the will of God in this matter? What is the direction we should go? He realizes they're going to do whatever he asks them to do. And if he says something stupid out loud, something stupid's going to happen. And he gets this glass of water and he says to, to the guys and to God, far be it for me, oh my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. It's good to know that you've got men like that on your side, David would probably agree. But it's also very sobering to realize that if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, it's, it's going to happen. I think our president runs into that sometimes. Any president runs into that sometimes. They have to be careful what they say out loud in the, in the room full of their staff because that's a bunch of eager beavers in that Oval Office, I guarantee you. Those are folks that are like, did he say what I thought he said? Well, he didn't say we were supposed to do it, but he didn't say we weren't supposed to do it. He has to be careful. That president has to be careful what he says. Because interesting things can take place if you don't qualify your statements. No, 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 I was just talking. I was just talking. No, I'm just mad. I didn't mean we need to bomb Libya. I was just saying, you know, man, I wish those guys would be wiped off the earth and three guys leave the room. No, 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 come back. Come back, you know. Well, David realizes that. I've got to be careful with these guys. There was a responsibility that he felt, and that's a good thing. Verse 26, also the mighty warriors were Asael, the brother of Joab, and Elhanah, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. And he begins to name all of these guys that were along with him. And God takes the time to put these names in here, Ammonites and, and, uh, and different people from all over, coming alongside. His, his, the group is, is, is growing. It was a little divided there in Israel for a while there. We didn't know if we were supposed to be with David, if we weren't. Now that Saul is gone, there's some clarity. 
They understand now, like at the beginning of the chapter that we read, we realize now that you've always been the one. Well, that's good. I, I mean, I wish you did figured that out earlier, but it's good we see that now. Confusion gets removed when confusing people get removed. It's okay. I, I, we've said this a lot, and I, I, I would encourage this in your own walk with the Lord. Sometimes there are blessed subtractions in your life. There are. I want to know the mind of God. And so if I want counsel, I ask people that I know, seek the mind of God. If I wanted people's opinion, if I wanted to take a straw poll, if it was a democracy, well, then we'd put it up for a vote. But that's not how walking with the Lord works. And in my life, in my walk with Jesus, there are certain people I don't ask advice from. Now they'll give it, and you know those people. They'll offer up that advice, whether you've asked for it or not. And you have to be polite and not tell them, mm, you're about the most carnal Christian I've ever met. I'm not taking your advice. Now, you don't say that out loud. But you do feel that in that sense, and you have to have that discernment in your head. But you, on the other hand, are a godly Christian. You're a person that I can see who is walking the walk, and God is with you, and I can see the fruit of that walk evident in your life. Yeah, what do you have to say? I want that. And those are the folks that you pull in, that you bring close. David has these guys. A lot of these guys you can't ask, but they're definitely good tools in your hand. Others you do. Now, chapter 12, now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren that little tiny tribe of Benjamin, able to sling with right or left hands. They learned that. They were uh, useful tools. JC, I think, is the only kid. I think, are you the only one that can, that can bat left and right? Or is some, one of the other kids can do that? He's the only one in our family that can bat left or right. It's a little disconcerting, you know? <laughs> you never know if he's going to get that. Sometimes I think he just chooses left just to throw us all for a loop, you know? It's a handy little gizmo, little, because no offense, but if, if you're over in that field, and I, I always forget that's left field, right? When you're standing at the plate and you're looking at your right hand, that's not right field, that's left field, right? It's right field? I know. See, sports guy. I know everything. Whoever's in that field usually isn't as great as the guy who's in that field or the gal who's in that field, okay? You can all go home. I don't care if you're here or not. Stupid baseball. I'm just kidding. Don't hurt me. She's a softball pitcher. I want to be, I don't want to be in that. You're a pitcher, aren't you? I just I don't even know what you do. What do you do? Anything. Oh, you're one of those people. I can do anything. Anyway, these guys, if they get wounded in war in their right arm, that's no big deal. They'll just start using their left. It's a handy thing. But someone isn't taken out because they're limited in their skill. These guys were very skillful in what they did. In verse 8, some of the Gadites joined David at the stronghold of the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and who were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. They were those high-speed, low-drag guys that you need in your army. These are, the, these are the, the tactics and skills that God brings through people into David. Now, these are not advisors. These are guys you go tell what to do. Could you go do this? You guys are the fast ones. Could you run over there? 
You guys are the ones that can swing left or right. We've got to go around this corner of this building. I need a right-hander. We're coming around this corner of the building. I need a left-hander, you know? Guys with different skills are brought in to help David in these battles. These were the sons of Gad, verse 14, captains of the armies. The least was over 100, and the greatest was over 1,000. These guys just had serious leadership skills. Not everybody has that. They have fellowship skills. They don't have leadership skills. And that's okay. I remember in my uh, platoon that I was a part of, attached to in uh, 2nd Marine Division out in, in uh, El Toro, um, we had, I got promoted to be a corporal finally in E4. It took me three years to get there, and I was in E4. And I think we had 12 E4s in that platoon of, of 27 or 28 guys. 12 of us were, and we had like three privates. So there's 12 of us trying to boss around three kids, you know. And you got to listen to me. I'm an NCO now. You know, you're all NCOs, you know. None of you guys are even that good at it. So, um, we were overweight in that area and, and they started giving us outs, you know, anybody want to leave? Who's an E4. And I was like, I'll go by. <laughs> I took off. There's too much competition there. Well, or just too thick. It was just, it was kind of a waste of time. Um, these guys just had leadership skills. They were able to be put into these positions and, and some people have that and some people don't, um, these guys did. In verse 16, and some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold, and David went out to meet them and answered and said to them, if you've come peaceably to me, now pay attention to this, peaceably to me to help, my heart will be united with you. But if to betray me to my enemies, uh, since there is no wrong in my hands, may God of our fathers, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. Then the spirit came upon uh, Amasiah, chief of the captives, and he said, so it's prophetic, we are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains over the troops. One of the things we talked about on our second teaching there at the men's retreat this uh, Saturday morning was this very thing. How often the Holy Spirit shows up throughout scriptures, and you've read it, but you don't pay attention to the fact that that statement there was by the Spirit. You just think that was a statement by Amasiah. That's it. You just think that way. That was the Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we already have the Holy Spirit present. He's hovering over the face of the earth, over the face of the waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's remember what was created on the first day, and the second day, and the third day. We skip right over the fact that from the very beginning, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, although clearly mentioned throughout the Bible, is the least we know about, the least we discuss, because that's his job. He's always behind the scenes pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is always pointing people to Father. In those roles, although completely equal, the Holy Spirit wants to be invisible. And it's amazing how he can do that. This is his sword, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the unction of the Holy Spirit, this was written, 66 different books, 40 different authors, all prompted by the same author, the Holy Spirit, to write these things. He even puts his name throughout the passages, and yet we don't even see him half the time when we're reading him. We skip right over the fact that this guy, but until today, but this guy, by the Holy Spirit, said, 
Holy Spirit comes upon him to give him a statement to give to David so that David knows he's with them. What a wonderful thing. That's what David wants in his life. I want to hear people that speak to me by the Spirit, not by their flesh. I don't want to hear you say, yes, I'm with you. I want to hear the Holy Spirit say, yes, I'm with you. So important, so different than what the world expects. And so this guy by the Spirit says this, and he goes on and names the rest of these guys that defected um, from Saul uh, to David. And they came to David, and they were mighty men of valor, and they did raids with him. Now, um, David's army at Hebron, verse 23. You've got Judah bearing the shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. Simeon, 7,100. Levi, 4,600. Um, Joadiah, they're the Aaronites. They're from that um, the Aaronites, that's who they are, 3,700, and so on, Benjamin, 30, or 3,000, and, and then we get into bigger numbers, Ephraim, 20,000, and so on, and he, and he enumerates all of those, but I don't want to take the time to do that. You can read that on their own. It's just the names and the numbers of guys with them. Until we get to verse 38, all these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel and all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. One mind. They weren't double-minded. They weren't there for ulterior motives or different reasons, obviously. It's just one mind. And James warns us about that. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-mindedness causes us to hesitate. It causes us to choose God or the flesh, these guys that come alongside David had one goal and one thought, and that is to be alongside David to help him establish his kingdom. As Christians, that's what we are called to do. We're called to be single-minded, to focus on helping God establish his kingdom by receiving souls, bringing people to Jesus, telling them about him. That is our single purpose. Now, we can't establish his kingdom on heaven or on earth. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not a kingdom now theology guy. We can't make that all happen. You can't legislate God's kingdom into place. But when we became Christians, we became citizens of heaven and therefore populating his kingdom, you see. And my job is to then, as an ambassador for Christ, to tell as many people as I can that they might become citizens of heaven. And that's what I mean by establishing his kingdom bringing people into the kingdom. Eventually, Jesus will rule and reign and establish his authority on this earth and rule and reign, and we rule and reign with him because we're a part of his kingdom. But I want to be single-minded. When I'm double-minded in this matter, when I've got other things going on in my life, when I haven't mastered that, I'm pretty much worthless with what God wants me to do. I'm sidelined. He would tell the guys that were going to war, look, if you've still got a wife and you haven't lain with her yet, go home and lay with your wife. I don't have to put too fine a point on it. If you got a field or something that you haven't plowed yet, if you got vineyards, if you got different things going on in your life, if you're double-minded, 
I want you to stay home until that's straightened out. Get it straightened out, though. I want to be single-minded. I want to master my own walk with the Lord. I want to make sure that I understand where I stand and why things are happening in my life the way they're happening. But if I'm confused about what's going on, I'm surprised at the attacks of Satan in my life. If I don't understand that Satan is the author of confusion and God is not, if I don't have that right in my head, then I'm not much good in the battle because I'm still over here twiddling my thumbs in the corner trying to figure out why life is going the way it's going. We're in a war. We're in a battle. And we're going to be attacked. And these guys understand that. We understand that we're joining you, David. We understand that there are enemies of you, David. We understand that the kingdom is going to have some difficulties, but we stand. And we're prepared to do what we're called to do. Just let us know. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking their brethren, what the brethren had prepared for them. And it describes this supply chain. Moreover, those who were near to them from as far away as Issachar to Zebulun and Naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules, on oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. I mean, the whole nation is of one mind, not just the warriors, even the supply chain was. Bring it. There's this train of donkeys bringing all the food for these guys to get them all, you know, bulked up, you know, got to carb up before the battle, you know, for three days they did that. Verse thir- or chapter 13, I'm doing okay. Three chapters in 10 minutes, I can do that, right? And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. Sounds like a good thing, right? It's not, it's not. He consulted with the captains of thousands and the hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, this is straw poll, this is democracy. If it seems good to you, let me pause there. Who should it seem good to? It should seem good to God. Folks, if we are, as Christians, focused on what seems good to people, and we're asking them their opinion, we're going to find ourselves in some very serious trouble. In my life, I need to find out what is God's mind on this? What is his opinion? What seems good to him? Because it's often not what seems good to the world or to the rest of the folks around me. He consulted with the captains and the thousands and the hundreds and with every leader. David said to the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, which is secondary, Let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us. We have not inquired um, at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. The worldly opinion was, yeah, why not? Well, David gathered together all Israel from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath, Jerim, and David and all Israel went up to Balah, or Balah, to Gerjath, Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio, 
drove the cart. They were the strong men. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps and stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, or Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? We've read this story before, and we've, we've studied it, so I don't want to take too much time, but this is the same problem. What's wrong with a new cart? What's wrong with these guys bringing it? Because it's not the way God had prescribed for them to do it. I think it's very important in today's day and age that we understand this concept that the ends don't justify the means. Just getting the ark to Jerusalem is not nearly as important as how we get the ark to Jerusalem. I'll put even a finer point on it. You cannot have racial or social justice without Jesus Christ. We cannot get there through worldly means or through man's attempts. By all means, we should have racial justice. By all means, we should have social justice. But you cannot get there without Jesus. It ends up in disaster. It ends up in division. It ends up in fear. It ends up in this right here. David was afraid of God that day. Well, that's a good thing, David. You need to be. You're not his buddy. You're not a guy that God has called that can do whatever he wants now that, hey, now that he is called. You still are under his authority. You still need to seek the mind of the Lord. You still need to be very careful at what you say out loud and what you do. You still need to be very careful with your position because it's, a, it's temporary. There's going to be someone else that comes up after you. So he gets upset, and he's scared, and he should be. So David would not move the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, or the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. So it's a blessing while he was there. So what do they do? Well, let's just forget that mission for a while. Chapter 14 is where God sees the, the king of Tyre and says, why don't you send David some cedar trees with masons and carpenters and all the help he's going to need to build a house. And after God does that for David, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. David didn't know at that point until this thing happened with this king of Tyre. He's not even a believer. I mean, he doesn't even know the Lord. He's moved by the Lord to be a blessing to David, but David says, okay, so you're not mad at me? So I am, I am still your man? I'm not like Saul and I just don't know it, you know? These are thoughts going through David's mind, but as soon as he sees this blessing, he's like, okay, okay, I'm still here. Now he goes on and takes more wives and that names his kids, but he says this in chapter 8. Now when the Philistines heard that David, had, or verse 8, excuse me, now, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it, and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Raphaim, and David inquired of God, 
He didn't inquire of all the people this time. What do you guys think? Should we go out? Should we not go out? David says, I'm just going to go over here and ask my boss. And God said, you shall go up against the Philistines. Go up. I will deliver them into your hand. Thank you for asking is the idea there. Yeah, you can go. Now, that it's not a standing order. He, he inquires, and God says, yeah, I want you to go up. Go ahead. And he does. So they went up, and they win. And they called the place Baal uh, Perizim. And they left their gods there, the, the Philistines did, and they burned them with fire. It was a good thing. It says, therefore, David inquired of God again about going up against them. The Philistines made another raid on the valley. And he says, you shall not go up after them. Well, I'm glad I asked. I thought the Philistines were the enemy and we could just kind of go ahead and do what we want to do with them. No, let's ask again and make sure. God says, I don't want you to go up. I want you to circle around them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So David did as God commanded him. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. Then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. Two times he asked to two different answers. I mean, he still got to go up against them, but there were different tactics involved. It's always things going on that we don't know about, and we need to inquire of God often. So now that he's got two battles under his belt, well, God has heard him and answered him according to his asking, and he sees that blessing from Tyre. Let's get back to the ark, he says. David built for himself the house in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. This is the tabernacle there. And David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. There you go, buddy. I say that respectfully. He's way much better man than me. Good job, David. That's exactly right. And as a as someone who reads this and as someone who watches other people's lives, it's like, yes, 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 yes. You can't go wrong with that thought. Do it exactly like God said. You will never go wrong by obeying God's word. You will go wrong when you think you're above God's word or you think you can bypass God's word or get the blessing that God promises without the requirements for that blessing. Never happens. You've got to be there. We've got to let the guys carry it. You mean get closer to the thing that killed the last guy that touched it? I mean, think about it. It's on a cart. It's clear over there, and the guy reaches out and touches it. Now you want us to put it on our shoulders? Yeah, because that's the way God said so. And so he gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark, and they get the names of the guys, and there's chief musicians, and everybody's playing their instruments, and they're doing their thing. He says, you are the heads of your fathers, verse 12. Houses of the Levites, sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. That's just God's word bringing it home right there. David learned his lesson. We have Proverbs. Let me read three of them to you about asking for counsel. So you understand where David was coming for 
at the beginning. Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and increase learning. A wise man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Good. Proverbs 20.18, and there are many more. I just picked three. Plans are established by counsel. By wise counsel, wage war. Proverbs 24.6, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. That's all true. The, the key here is wise counsel. The key here isn't the, just a multitude of counselors, but a multitude of counselors who have the mind of God. You don't ask a, a group of people what their opinion is on the matter. You're going to get many opinions anyway. You want the opinion of those who follow the Lord. And if God has already established his opinion on the matter, there's no reason to ask anybody else. My wise counsel is the Lord. He's our counselor. Literally says that in Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful God, everlasting Father. He's our counselor. He's our physician and so on. God is our counselor. Let God be your counselor. What does God want me to do? What does his word say? And God's counsel by the Spirit will never contradict God's word, ever. They'll always jive together. They'll always mesh together. He never goes outside of his word. He's, a, he's magnified his, his word above his name. And so when the Holy Spirit tells you to do something that's contrary to Scripture, I can say with assurity, you have not heard from the Holy Spirit. He always jives with God's word. Wise counsel. David figures it out. Good for him. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. It was not a mystery as to how to do this. They just wanted to do it differently. They didn't think it mattered. What did? So David spoke to the leaders of the Levites, and they got their instruments and their stringed instruments and their harps and their cymbals and their singing, and they, they did it with joy. It's a beautiful thing. Now, more names. Who did what? Who sang what? You can read that on your own. I don't want to take the time to do that. I want to conclude here with verse 27 as they're bringing this up. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, uh, and Shenaniah, the music master, with the singers, David also wore a linen ephod. Thus, all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and cymbals, making music, with stringed instruments and harps. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. We've read that before, and we've studied that before, and we've got lots of things to say about this woman, Michael. She's not alone. The evidence can be right in front of people. The ark made it to Jerusalem. The way it's happening right now, the way Michael is witnessing it take place, the things are happening. There is joy in all the land. They're walking in. The ark has finally made it here. No one died on the way there. And yet when she sees it, she does not see the fruit. She doesn't see the results. In her heart, she despises him. Oh, God. I mean, was it really worth all that? Spiritual things just don't mean a lot to some people. She's supposed to know this stuff. She's supposed to see this and say, wow, 
in humility, I'm wrong. I, I, I thought a linen ephod would be done. I think you should wear his. I told him, bring your, bring your crown, bring your robes. I mean, lead him in here. And he's not doing any of that, but I can see why. He's abased before the Lord. That's how it should have gone for a wife who's spiritually minded. But for her, and guys, for the rest of the people looking at your life from the outside, outside of Christ, even though the results are obvious, and there's beauty for ashes, and God has restored what the locust has eaten in your life, and you're walking with joy and confidence and assurance of your salvation, they'll still look at you like you're, you're a fool. And their life is an absolute disaster. But you're the fool. You can't beat that. There's nothing you can do for that. And I want to encourage you in that. You will have your critics. You will have your armchair quarterbacks, spiritually speaking. And although they're sitting there and not doing anything for the Lord, they will tell you what you are doing for the Lord is worthless. And you've got to put them where they belong, back in their chair. And you need to do what God's called you to do. Stay strong. Follow the Lord. Inquire of him and do what he leads you to do. Be filled with the Spirit. Because a lot of other people are watching more people are watching you do well with the Lord than are those being your critics. We're going to have communion now. We did it. That's not bad. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took uh, the bread that they were eating at the time and he broke it and gave thanks to the Lord and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, and eat this bread, you do this in remembrance of me. Now, he hadn't died on the cross yet, but he was letting them know that tomorrow he's going to die on the cross. And that what you're eating here is symbolic of what that is. I'm, I'm dying. For, thank you, mate. Ooh. I'm doing this for you. Just like the lamb that was slain when you left Egypt was done for you, for the angel of death to not come in and take you and kill you. Likewise, that's why I'm dying on the cross the next day, so that my body's broken instead of yours. And we eat this and drink this in remembrance of him. Likewise, he took the cup that night and said, this is the cup of my blood of of the new covenant. There was an old covenant where if you kept the law perfectly, you could go to heaven. If you didn't keep the law, there were sacrifices to be made, but they were temporary sacrifices. You still needed the sacrifice. Jesus was saying, I am the new covenant. In other words, the old covenant is no longer in force. There is no way to get to heaven through these animal sacrifices, through all these rituals that I had taught you throughout the years. That's done. The new covenant, because you can't have two contracts in force on the same situation. The new covenant of my blood is that I've paid for your sins. My blood was shed instead of your blood. And as often as you drink this, you do this in remembrance of me. And so that's why we do this this morning to remind ourselves that we are under a new covenant with Jesus. He's established it. And by establishing it, he's made the old covenant void. So here we are with this piece of bread in this cup, which is all we need to remind ourselves of what was done 2,000 years ago for our sakes. And we're thankful for that this morning. God, as we hold this bread and this cup in our hands, it's being passed to us even now. We want to thank you for this reminder that you've given us. The 2,000 plus years ago, you took the penalty. You were the lamb that took away the sin of the world, that you're the only sacrifice that ever mattered. And you were perfect and accepted by God. And we know this because you rose from the dead. 
Death couldn't hold you, and death can only hold those who are sinners, and you weren't. You were perfect. And therefore, death couldn't hold you. You were raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. And you tell us that you're going to prepare a place for us, and that where you are, we're going to be also, and that you're coming back to get us and to take us there. We believe all of that. We thank you for it, Lord. We're reminded of that this morning. Whatever's going on down here in our lives, whatever temporary difficulties we're going through, big or small, nothing compares to what was taken place 2,000 years ago at the cross. We are no longer going to hell, God, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you like the song we just sang that we're innocent before you. Not just, not just pardoned, but innocent. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We're reminded. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, as we go out this week, we've got another Bible study under our belts. We've been encouraged. We've praised you. We've worshiped you. That's strengthening to our bones and to our souls. We appreciate that, Lord. We've been filled with your spirit, hopefully. You've been given us, you've given us the gifts that we need to be your ambassadors, to be single-minded this week, God. We've been reminded that in our lives, there's only one thing that's ever mattered in our lives, and that's the fact that we've trusted in you for salvation. Likewise, that's all the rest of this world needs to know. They need to know that you died on the cross for their sins. They need to know that you love them with an everlasting love, that you draw near to them and they will draw near to you, that you will forgive them of their sins if they come to you. So God, help us to be single-minded this week to tell people about this good news that you've given us to share. In Jesus' name, amen.